1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. How many of you have been walking with the Lord for a little while? How's the more and more going? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's just this verse right here tells me that we are never done. We have not arrived. That we can grow in our love for one another more and more. One of the signs that will mark the end times is that the love of people will grow cold. The love of be- people will grow cold. And that people become lovers of self, self-centered. That is not to mark our church, and it doesn't mark our church. Praise God. That we are to be others-focused, others-centered. That love is to continue to grow and grow and grow. With these new believers in the church of Thessalonica, again, Paul just had three weeks with them and had to hit the road because he was being persecuted. He had to tell them a lot of things in a very short amount of time. And obviously, the major doctrines of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection as a foundation, the second coming of Jesus, which we're going to talk about, and obviously, faith, hope, and love. Those three things working out in a church. And so, He's talking to this church after warning them about not being in the culture, not having sexual morality as something that marks them, but rather holiness, sanctification, being set apart. He says, now about your love, I don't really need to write to you about this. Why? Because you are doing well. And I want you to continue in that love for one another more and more and to make it your ambition. And this is verse 11. I think this uh, section right here is really important for our society. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And he describes what that looks like here. Ambition is not wrong. As Christians, we're actually to have ambition. Did you know that? Ambition to follow the Lord. Ambition to do what God has made us to be. That's a great thing. But he says here, he defines ambition. He says, I want you to be ambitious to to lead a quiet life. And here's what it looks like. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. And so one of the very first things that Paul tells this new believer is you got a lot to work on yourself. So you're going to come to the Lord you're going to see all these wonderful things and you're going to want to start to tell everybody else what to do and how to act when it hasn't changed in your own life very much. Anyone? Anybody experienced that before? This is Jesus' teaching, do not judge. We like to quote that part, lest you be judged, right? Don't judge me. Okay, but Jesus says, first take the plank out of your own eye then you will see into your brother's life clearly 
and be able to minister to him in grace and love. Does that make sense? I think it should for all of us. And so the tendency when something new happens to us in the Lord, say he teaches us something new, is to instantly go out and start telling other, everybody else what for. Anybody else have that situation go on or just me? Usually it's me and you guys know it, right? I'm in the position where I must do that and it, sometimes things aren't clicking, clicking in my own heart, yet here's the text and here we go. And so Paul is saying, live a quiet life. Work with your own hands. Now, he's going to talk about the context of why this is. They are focused, the church focused on the return of Jesus Christ, and that is a very powerful thing. It can motivate us in Jesus to live for eternity, to live in the very presence of God, so to speak. The idea that it, he's, I'm going to be with him shortly. And I will give an account. And how am I to be living if he appears? That's a very powerful thing in the life of the believer. That is awesome. And so we should be living like that. And we'll talk more about that. But I think what happened in this church is they said, hey, Jesus is coming. Let's quit our jobs. Woohoo! That's really spiritual, everybody. And so Paul says, no, I want you to keep your nose to the grind Mind your own business, work with your hands. If you're not working, you're usually working out in someone else, else's life. You're usually meddling. I don't know about you, but I get that way. If I'm not busy about the Lord's business, I can find a bunch of things to get involved with and, you know, meddling, basically. And so one of the first things he tells them right in this new church is, hey, mind your own business work. And here's why. He gives two reasons why he's calling this new church to work with their hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So your work is a witness. Did you ever know that? Your work is a witness. They're watching you. They're watching how you work, when you show up to work, what days you take off, what days you don't take off. Do you cut corners? Do you not cut corners? Are you lazy? Are you not lazy? They're watching you. Your work is a witness. Amen? Was it Colossians 3.23? Do everything you do as unto the Lord and not to men. We're working for a different employer than you think you're working for. No matter where you're working, what you're doing, no matter where you are on man's scale, whether you're at the bottom or the top, we are all servants to the king, and whatever we do, we do in his presence for his worship. That's great. When you look at the lives of the people that God chose to spread the gospel, who did he, who, what, did, what was Jesus' occupation? How about the disciples, a lot of them? Paul? Ten, what were they doing when Jesus found them? They're working. It's pretty cool. Anyways, he says two things. So work so that you will win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anyone else. Do we not live in a dependent society? As Christians, we need to repent from being dependent upon the U.S. government. Flat out. 
we have replaced the church with the government. The people who should be helping each other out is who? Us. That is our natural expression of love. And what I love about a family is they don't take much junk, usually. If someone's hurting, if they need help, what do we do? Boom! Food, shelter, clothing, lifting them up, encouraging them, building them up. But if that becomes a lifestyle, I'm talking about people who can work and don't. If that becomes a lifestyle, then it's beautiful when the body of Christ comes and says, listen, brother, sister. Now there's tons of different uh, uh, different balances within our culture. I grew up with a single, single mom, and some of you have uh, different situations in your house. We're talking about, are you witnessing the Lord no matter where God's placed you? And also, is what you do, uh, the, the lifestyle that you're living, are you living in a way that you are being a Uh, a vortex of taking from everybody, or are you actually giving to people in society? Because Christ has called us to be givers, right? It is more blessed to give and not receive. And so as Christians, we should be looking at every opportunity to be able to go work so that we can actually go bless people. Do you see the, the the, the mentality there? Now, there are seasons in our lives when we're out of work, or seasons in our lives when we are needing help. And that is understandable, and we praise God, so to speak, for the safety net. But there's a, there's a proverb that I, I was thinking of this week, and I think it's Proverbs 19, 18 or something, 19, 15. Someone flip over there for me. Psalms, Proverbs, actually, I'll go over there. There's a lot of great uh, Proverbs. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and read it nice and loud. Laziness brings on deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Laziness brings on deep sleep, and an idle person, uh, shiftlessness, is in some of your translations, will bring on hunger. What we've effectively done is taken away the penalty for not working. And so people will continue to be what? Lazy. And it's a destructive type of thing. So where it seems compassionate, and it is in some circumstances, when it becomes a lifestyle, it's actually destructive to that person. And I would say that person in Christ needs to be encouraged to get up and find a job. I have had people as an employer who will not take a job I want to give them because it's a dollar less an hour than what they receive on unemployment. And they don't realize the benefit. They do not realize the benefit of what they need in their hearts, that they're created in the image of God, that they are created to work and to glorify God and go create and go and have ambition and go and live out their lives in the glory of God, that they don't realize that their work is a witness. Is anybody uncomfortable about this conversation or just me? But we've got an epidemic going on in our culture. And it's not about race. It's not about any of those things, all those factors play in. It's about we've lost our connection with our creator and we don't know what we were meant to be and to do. And just as we were talking about sexuality last week and that got skewed, same thing with how we are made to be workers. 
how to, we are to glorify God. And obviously, in, I'm not talking about, there's, you know, sometimes different people need to work within a family to make things happen. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about, are we going out there and glorifying God in our workplace? Whatever God has placed before us, are we glorifying God? Or, because things are easy, we've chosen to take the easy route and accept a bunch of stuff from different people and be a taker instead of a giver. And those things, I just want you to know, as someone who's in constant pain, I wrestle with in my own heart. So I'm not talking, sometimes I just want to give up and collect, uh, you know, whatever, disability, unemployment. And I know I could qualify because, I mean, look, at everybody qualifies, right? I think it is very important for government, righteous government, to take care of the poorest of the poor and to take care of people who cannot help themselves. We see that in the story of Ruth. We see the righteous government that said, leave the corners of the fields. When you are plowing your field and you drop something, you leave it. That was the welfare system so that those who did not have and who were the less fortunate could come work and they had to go and pick it and clean it and bring it home and that's who Ruth was. I just think that we need to pray about this in our heart and pray for our society. The the answer isn't relieving the pain in our lives. The answer isn't just making things easier for a nation the answer is embracing the cross of Christ, picking up daily and doing the things we don't want to do for the benefit of others. Others. And when we as a nation, if God would be merciful to us, would give us that heart again as we repent, boy, I tell you, we would not be spending more than we are earning We'd actually be a blessing to the nations, truly a blessing to the nations like we once were. But it starts in our home. It starts with where we are. It starts with me as an individual. And so Paul is hitting this church right off the bat that said, let's just kind of hang out and be spiritual. It's not spiritual just to hang out. It's spiritual to work. It's spiritual to be a person who is able to give and contribute to society, to better it to show God, amen, wherever you are. And for you guys, that's something you had to pray out between the Lord. And I just want to put that out, that, out there as a pastor. I'm just saying, you know, I, I see it. It's happening, and it creeps into the church. And know that if you're in that situation, we want to help, and we want to love people, but there is a short leash on that. And we expect you, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, to pursue work, Amen? not a fun position to be in, is it? But it's godly. It's good. It's his witness, and you're, and you're becoming a blessing to others. So that is where he kind of, he's teaching these new believers about this. Verse 13. And brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who, who sleep in death. And so Paul's responding to a bunch of questions, a bunch of questions that were happening within uh, the church. The new believers are coming to the Lord. And Paul is gone, and they're getting persecuted, and people are dying. Well, when people are dying, you're wondering what? Where did they go? 
well, if Jesus is coming back, are they going to miss the resurrection? What's going on? How many of you don't know many of these things yourselves right now? I've been walking with the Lord for a while. Totally. There's a lot of things I'm discovering every day as I'm reading my Bible. And so Paul is talking to this new church about that. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This word sleep, because when we die, we do not, uh, it's not death biblically. In other words, we don't go to judgment. We don't go to hell. It's not a permanent deal. Paul uses a word that is temporary, sleep is the word, because there's a resurrection. Now, we, now there's a doctrine that it's about soul sleep, and I think many people believe this, and I can understand how they would get that out of that. But we do not sleep when we die. We go directly to be with the Lord. Philippians 1, 23, 1, 2, 3. Really easy to remember. Wonder how I remember stuff? 1, 2, 3. <laughs> Philippians 1, 2, 3, right? To be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. Jesus said on the cross to the person next to him, today you will be what? With me in paradise. There is no purgatory. There's no in-between. You're either with the Lord or you're in hell. And so that's kind of how it works. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've gone before you, who sleep, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. We grieve, but we do not grieve like the rest of mankind. We do not grieve without hope when those brothers and sisters have gone on before us because we know it's just a temporary, a temporary delay before we get to see them again. That's our hope. And so, yes, we're mourning that we miss them, but we know that we will see them again. And that is awesome. And he's going to talk a little bit more about what that's like. The world does not have that hope. I don't know if you have ever been to a funeral, probably or officiated a funeral of a, of a non-believer, what do you say? Death is final. There's no more say in anything. You can't spin it. You can't say a bunch of, I'm just not going to do it. People can share stories and things like that and try to, but the, the fact is it's over. And you're either with the Lord or you're not. It's that straightforward. And so I focus on the hope of the gospel for everybody else who's there. You look at the story of Lazarus, the beggar. There was a rich man and Lazarus the beggar. Jesus is a parable, Jesus said. And what happened with Lazarus? He had all the accoutrements of life, all the comforts and all those things. Not that those things are bad, but he didn't lay down his life before the Lord. They ruled him. And when he died, he went down to Hades. And, and Lazarus the beggar, who stood by his house every day and begged, he died too. Lazarus went to paradise to be with the Lord, and then he could see, uh, well, he can see, sorry. Then uh, this rich man was down in, in a place called Hades, hell. And there was this unquenchable fire. And it says that he looked up and saw Lazarus. And he called out to Abraham, because obviously Abraham is father of the living, the father of the faithful. He calls out to him and says, Abraham, have Lazarus go dip his finger in some water and bring it over to me so that I could quench my tongue. And Abraham says, I can't do it. There's a, I, we can't, and there's a chasm between us two. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't. And notice Lazarus, the beggar, is not the one who's interacting with the person on the other side. He probably doesn't even know what's going on. Abraham does for some reason. 
And then he says, well, please, send someone to go talk to my brothers and my sisters, please, and warn them of this place. And Abraham says, guess what? If they didn't believe the law, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone, though they were raised from the dead. Heavy stuff. Eternal stuff. Mourning without hope. We have hope. Praise the Lord. And that should be our mindset going forward. We want to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible, share the good news of Jesus with everyone we can. Because when we're in that situation, it's done. And I, wanted, I would rather go out with people hating me and losing my own life like Jesus Christ and being offensive or whatever it might be, not in an offensive manner, but the cross is offensive. You know what I'm talking about. I'd rather go out that way and done have all I could have done and you too rather than to end our lives with regret, you know? And so this living for eternity, verse 14, for we believe, why do we have this hope? For we believe that Jesus rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you know that when you see the Lord, you will see people who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have gone out, those who have died in Christ Jesus and are with him, you will see them. He's bringing them with. It's going to be a family gathering. Praise God. These people are watching people they love be persecuted and probably die. I want to see him again. What's the promise? Where's the hope? And Paul's telling them, this is where it is. And he goes, according, verse 15, according to the Lord's will, this is the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. We're not going to see the Lord. If you were alive and it's the day of the Lord when the Lord comes back, we are not going to see the Lord before they do. They're not missing out on the day of the Lord. They're going to be there first. We're going to catch them actually together is kind of the picture. He's going to explain that right here. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When God makes himself known in his glorious return, you're going to know it. He uses three pictures here. Some people think they're the same thing. Some people speculate that they're different. The trumps are connected to the last trump in Revelation or in 1 Corinthians 15, maybe the trump of God. There's a lot of different speculation, but the idea behind it is it's going to be loud when God appears and everyone will know it. No mistake. You know, ever, ever seen like War of the Worlds? You know, and it's all of a sudden, it's all, you know, <laughs> that sound when the, never mind, okay, I'm losing everybody. <laughs> I have the sound in my head. In other words, it just shakes the world. Everybody will know what's going on. All right, coming back to reality here. War of the Worlds. I got to sci-fi land here. 
The dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, after the dead in Christ rise, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. And this is where we get the word rapture. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those who have died in Christ, when God calls out, the resurrection will happen. Those bodies will be lifted from the dead, raised from the dead, uh, reanimated with the spirits that are with the Lord. I don't even know how all that works. Meeting the Lord, we instantly will be transfigured in the moment in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, and we will be caught up and to be with them and meet the Lord in the air and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. That is awesome. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage another, one another with these words. Now, there is a lot of discussion within the church as to when that happens. And so that word rapture, being caught up, when does it happen in God's plan? Many people, most evangelicals believe that uh, it will happen before something called the Great Tribulation, which is a seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth before Christ's return. Uh, so people believe that this First Thessalonians chapter 4 is talking about before that God's going to call us all up and we're going to have a party, we're going to meet him in the air and we're going to have a lamb's supper, we're going to hang out with God for seven years while all hell is breaking loose in Revelation chapter 9 through 19. It's going crazy on the earth. That's what many God-fearing, God-loving people believe. And a lot of God-fearing people who love the Lord believe that no, you, the church is going to go through that time of seven years of pain, and at the end of that time, that's when the Lord will come. That there aren't two separate events, the Lord coming kind of halfway down, grabbing his church, and going and hanging out for seven years, and then at the end of that, coming back with the church and with the fiery ones. And so you can read passages that would seem to support both. And when I read passages that seem to support both, I just file it away and go, I need more information. I tend to come from a background that is, believes in the pre-tribulation rapture. And that's kind of what I teach. But there are people that I absolutely respect to believe the opposite and flip over to First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And you read verses like this, concerning the, come, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in that way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the gathering to the Lord will not happen until what? Until the rebellion occurs. And people, some people believe that is the, it's called the falling away. So some people believe that is a literal apostasy within the church. A lot of people can read, you can, because that's what the word means. It's what it is, apostasy. 
So many people will fall away from the faith at that time. Some people believe that that word falling away means being caught up to the Lord. That's what it's referring to. So that will happen first. And the Antichrist will be revealed before. And so there's a lot to think about. Matthew chapter 23, have fun. Luke chapter 21, have fun. Second Peter, have fun. So what all Christians believe is that Jesus is coming back. And that is why I joke and I say, well, what, what are you? Well, I said, I, I start with the rapture. I'm hoping for his glorious return right now. And if that doesn't work out, I'm immediately going to plan B. <laughs> Where other, <laughs> if it starts falling apart and the world starts falling down, okay, well, I was wrong. And here we go looking for the Lord's return, always, in all circumstances. The danger of a, of a pre-trib view is that we can be laxed in our faith, and when hard times come, we can become bewildered, bewildered in our faith. And so no matter what you believe, focus on Jesus Christ. He is your hope. He is your salvation. And so, Chapter 4 strongly, I think, leads towards, uh, you know, a pre-tribulation view, a rapture view before the seven years. And, and as you keep reading, you see why uh, in chapter 5. But after that, we who are still alive will be left and caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever and ever. Therefore, encourage one another, one another with these words. And the question is, well, when is it going to happen? Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, chapter 5, we do not need to write you. Oh. <laughs> Somehow he taught them, right? But he goes, for you know very well, and he's repeating it anyways like a good teacher. How many of you are teachers out there and you know to repeat stuff? For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Now he's introducing a term called the day of the Lord, that day of reckoning. Some people, that day of the Lord is a seven-year period. Some people believe it's a literal day, the day of judgment. What is a day? Have fun with that. The day of the Lord will come, whatever it is, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Who's it going to come to a thief in the life, night to? While people are saying peace and safety, meaning they're, 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 they're happy, they're content, life is going on as normal. That's when it's going to come. It will come then suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I can't even relate to that. I haven't even had kidney stones. You know, I mean, just like, all I know is, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there with Christine, she's like walking, and all of a sudden, ah, you know, it's just like, oh, you're good. It's like, no, and she's not going to escape it. That's the idea, and the intensity grows and grows and grows. It's going to come suddenly upon the earth with greater intensity. Jesus taught that. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. Now notice the idioms he's using here. He's using darkness and light. People in darkness are going to be overtaken by this day, but people of the light, are they going to be taken by this day? It says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. 
Notice it doesn't say that they wouldn't experience it, just as they wouldn't see it. So I'm growing in this with you. You are all the children of light and children of the day. You're not children of darkness, right? We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Verse 6, so then let us not be like the others. Let's not be like the people whom this day will come upon in, like a thief, who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, instantly, I want to go to drinking and sleeping. Is the issue drinking and sleeping here, getting drunk? He's, he's using pictures and imagery to try to talk to a church. He's saying nighttime things. People are sleeping. The people that the day is meant for, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath is meant for is those who are asleep to the things of God. They're drunk. They're intoxicated with the world. They're indifferent to the things of God. They're living in darkness. But you are not living in darkness. You're not intoxicated with the world. You are not asleep. You're awake. You're vigilant. You're waiting for the Lord. You're about His business. Or are we? Are we like the disciples in Gethsemane? Will you stay awake with me for one hour? Watch and pray. What happens? Oh, Jesus can't even wake them up. Three times. Heavy sleepers. Wake up, slumberers. Wake up, church. Wake up. Your redemption draws near. But since you belong to the day, let us be sober. What does that mean? As the world is engaged in things of darkness, our lives should reflect the light of Christ. And here he gives faith, hope, and, uh, faith, hope, and love again. Let us be sober. What does that mean? Now, he talks about drinking in, in other places. We shouldn't be drunks. But he says, put on faith. This is what being sober and being vigilant and walking in the light looks on. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. Notice it just doesn't come naturally. You have to do what? Put it on like your clothes. I mean, we joke around, you know, some of us are walking around in the underwear of God, you know, not in the full armor of God. <laughs> you know, we got <laughs> got to put on Stephen and I, sorry, man, <laughs> man time. <clears throat> but anyways, put on the full armor of God, right? Full armor of God. And he's saying, put on what? Put on love. You have to choose to put it on. Put on faith. Those things are protecting your heart. Protecting your heart. And notice, faith and love are together. Trusting the Lord, but it actually living out in your life, in my life. Do those things. Believe and do. Believe and do. Trust and obey. If you love God, you're going to obey Him. Those things are working out. That's how we glorify God. Living in the light. That's how we're to be sober. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. What does salvation mean? It means to be saved. The hope that you aren't going to do what? 
experience God's wrath, that he's actually going to save you, that protects my mind. It covers my head and my thinking that my salvation, that he is going to save me, my hope is in him, no matter what's going on around me. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And therefore, now I am pre-trib again. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Put that on. Wear that every day. And you know the difference. People are walking in darkness. They will suffer wrath. If you're walking in light, you won't. Jesus in John 8, 13 or something like that, 8, 15 maybe, might be different. Where my mind is not working these things. Oh yeah, 8.12. Jesus, what is the light? He says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light. What is walking in the light? Walking in Jesus. You're walking in his ways, his path, his spirit that's filling you. I am the light. John 3, flip over, 319. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light, instead of Jesus. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. No one likes that. But not coming to the light means we love our darkness, rather than being exposed and repenting and turning from those things. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We are people who are of the light, who are of the day, not of the darkness. And so he's telling this young church to live like it. Live like Live like the calling. Live in the reality of the return of Christ. Live in the reality that you are no longer in darkness. You're now in light. And the very last part here, and we're done. But since you belong to the day, let us be so. We're putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He died for us so that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, no matter what happens to you, where you are, where your loved ones are, that we may live 
together with him. That is the hope and the promise. And he's trying to comfort them in that we will be together again as you walk in the light. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other just as in fact you are doing. So brothers and sisters this week, walk in the light. Walk in the hope and the truth that Jesus is right around the corner for you. Whether your heart stops beating or you're raptured or you die in a tribulation or whatever happens, Jesus is your hope. Cancer in your body, things falling apart. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Put your heart and your life upon that truth that he's got you and walk like it by the power of the Spirit. And God will empower you to do it. And you will be a light and a witness to this dark world. Let him permeate your sexuality. Let him permeate your work. Let him permeate the words that come out of your mouth, the motives of your heart. Let Jesus live. Let him live. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you will soon return to gather your church, your beautiful bride. And Lord, we, we mourn for the destruction of those who would not know you because we did not share. And we, we believe that you are sovereign and you are good, Lord, but we believe that we are a part of that plan, that you would give us power and strength and, and give us context and the ability to see the times we're living in, like the, those sons of Ishkar, Lord, who were wise in Israel, those 200 leaders that knew that knew the times, they could discern the times and tell Israel what to do. That we would not be walking around in darkness, but light. And we'd be very well aware of the times, that they are dark, that judgment is coming, and so is our salvation. Lord, empower us today with this truth. Call your church out of a slumber. Call me out of a slumber, Lord, and help us to be that city upon the hill that's shining and bright, that everybody can see. And let love and faith mark us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.